Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. talking songwriting and teaching songwriting on the podcast today with songwriter extraordinaire faculty songwriter in residence and director of songwriting at new york university's steinhardt school phil galston welcome phil thank you jerry we're going to talk so much about your songwriting career because you've been all over the billboard charts you've been at number one on the hot 100 so i definitely want to get into all that but uh the the title that we talked about second faculty songwriter in residence and director of songwriting at NYU's Steinhardt School. What does that mean to begin with? Some days I'm not sure. But what it means is faculty songwriter in residence was my entry point. Um, and it, I, think, uh, I think it recognized hopefully some of my stature, but more importantly that songwriting is one of those weird beasts and I say weird beast because I begin every term by telling the students truth in advertising. I don't believe songwriting can be taught. So when I discussed the idea of assuming a role at NYU, we weren't sure what the actual faculty title might be eventually. And one of my mentors, Robert Rowe, uh, came up with the idea of faculty songwriter in residence. Director of Songwriting is a more recent title, and Clinical Professor of Songwriting is another recent title, both of which um, refer to both the burgeoning songwriting program at Steinhardt, the fact that songwriting is in general becoming recognized as a discipline in academia, and my increased responsibilities. It's interesting that you you come right out and say that from the beginning, that in some ways you don't believe songwriting can be taught. Meanwhile, you're at NYU, and there's a whole program. So how do you mix the the inspiration that comes along uh, with songwriting with, as you said, the word discipline? Well, uh, first of all, let me say that while I bluntly state that I don't believe songwriting can be taught, I do believe the tools of songwriting can be explained and elucidated and demonstrated. And I always say to students that that my job in the classroom is uh, the visualization is I'm walking in with a really big tool belt and I'm going to unroll it on a table. And as we go through their songs and songs that are appropriate that are considered great songs, we'll discuss how those tools are used. But that ultimately the songwriter's job whether they're students or not, doesn't make any difference, is to test those tools, see when they apply, pick them up, like going to a hardware store. How does that hammer feel? And then sometimes twist them into unrecognizable shapes. Sometimes throw them out the window. Just say, nah, I don't like that one, and that one doesn't work here. And, and further illustration of that is that one of the songs I usually play in the first class of a term is Paul Simon's America. And I play it for a particular reason, and that is, spoiler alert, because it does not include any rhymes. 
So here's one of the greatest songwriters of the 20th century, and he's not employing one of the three or four most important tools in songwriting. So that just proves my point, I hope. As for how you get from inspiration to discipline, um, if any endeavor ever perfectly illustrates the 90% perspiration, 10% inspiration, it's songwriting. And I think most of my colleagues would say, and I most definitely confirm, that our job is to be a receiver of some kind. Now, you'll hear all sorts of people say they're getting it from a divine power. Right. I don't really care where you're getting it from. Part of the reason I love living in New York and I've always stuck here, as a, part of the reason as a songwriter, is because the source of inspiration is endless. And I don't care if it's a billboard, um, a church bulletin board, um, just hearing somebody play some music out of a car. It's all around you when you're hermetically sealed in your own vehicle driving around Los Angeles or Atlanta. It's a little different. You've got to look somewhere else. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, as a teacher, I'm always trying to help students understand and utilize the tool of being ready. So first you have to be a good receiver, and then the second one is you have to know what to do when you receive it. And you have to know that in a distinctly personal way. And I liken it, as a tremendous baseball fan, I like it to batting, liken it to batting practice. Studying is batting practice. Okay. Why, why do great baseball players who, in a game situation, are going to face pitches up to 100 miles an hour, why is batting practice thrown at 60 or 65? So they can practice their tools. They can break it down. They can work on the rudiments. And that's important not just for the mechanical breaking down the steps through which you throw your bat at the ball, but because when you're in the game, all you can do is react. Any sports announcer who says that such and such a player was trying to place the ball in a certain place is, in my experience, usually wrong 85% of the time. What's really going on is the player has honed his skills to react to a pitch and know in that sense. And that's exactly the same with songwriting. You've got the inspiration. Where here comes the stimulus. What are you going to do with it? It's kind of a, a mental muscle. Have you found even in your own writing that if you sometimes go for a while without writing or, or thinking as deeply about songwriting, it, it takes a little practice or a little bit rusty before the ideas flow? Uh, it's difficult, a little difficult for me to answer that because generally speaking that hasn't happened in my life. Yeah. But I, yes, I, w- I would say that that would be true. I'm sure it's true for you as a journalist. And I think that um, most songwriters are living, breathing, drinking, eating, ingesting in any way they can songs, music, lyrics constantly. And so there is some level of activity going on. When, when our kids were little, I remember our son turning to me and saying, Daddy, how come we don't listen to music all the time in the house? And I said to him, well, Jesse... You're welcome to, but I am listening to music all the time. I'm just listening in my head. Right. Sort of like that line in, uh, in Shawshank Redemption where Andy uh, uh, was hearing music in his head, even, even, in, the, even uh, in solitary. Exactly. You don't need that, that record player to exactly. hold it down there to, yep. to hear. Yep. Um, what are some of the questions that an incoming class will ask when they first come in, uh, when they first meet you, when you have a first session that you're meeting with students? Are there any, any basic overall themes that come uh, up? There tend to be on the creative side. I mean, there are many business questions. Our program is not strictly speaking a business program, but of course, NYU Steinhardt is one of the world's great music business programs led by the great Larry Miller and uh, developed by the now um, retired Catherine Moore. And uh, so we... we interface and intersect and collaborate with them. So there are a lot of business questions, and I'm open to that, and I think it's really great to talk about it. On the creative side, um, students are usually interested in what you asked me a few minutes ago. They're interested in what are, what are my sources of inspiration? How, do I, how have I come up with a regimen that works for me? And almost all other questions start from that place. Um, 
I can talk about that endlessly. We talk about visualization. We talk about um, one topic that's become very important to me, two that are related. One is intent. Um, What is songwriting? I think uh, beginning, middle, and end, it's about communication. What most people don't see when they hear that word, which sounds so simplistic, is there are dozens of issues associated with it. So with whom are you trying to communicate? By what means are you trying to communicate? What's the, what are the avenues you're going to pursue communicate? And all of those get into every musical and every lyrical question you could possibly come upon, and everybody comes upon them. But if you're not thinking about those questions, and I'm not saying you're sitting there contemplating it like a marketing strategy. I'm just saying at some point I suggest that they, and I have learned myself, to make sure I'm considering this. The greatest problem after that, believe it or not, is fear. Yeah. Because if you think about why most people start to write songs, uh, I've yet to find a student or a colleague who doesn't say that their initial impetus was that they had something deep inside them they needed to get out, and this was the way they found to do it. Many people will admit to being blocked emotionally or not particularly able in a verbal sense or whatever it was, and they found this release to be just that and to be that's the initial communication. They're essentially at that point either communicating with themselves very valuable, or they're they're attempting to communicate with others who will be receptive right. to this. But that's a very very great distance from professional songwriting. Not that there isn't a relationship there. There is, but I like to illustrate that this way. I've been happily married for over thirty six years. How do I write a song about heartbreak? And yet, I just wrote four songs about heartbreak in the yeah. past four months. How do I do that? Well, first of all, it's universal, and we all experience it. And romantic heartbreak is related to other kinds of heartbreak. But if you're really trying to get in touch with the visceral emotion, if I'm trying to, I'm pretty removed from that. Yeah, I could do it through my kids, do it through my friends, do it through memory. So this is where inspiration and intent meet imagination. And imagination is really different than just expressing what's inside you. You can be quite imaginative when you do so, but a lot of times people, when they begin, aren't. In other words, they're saying, this is autobiographical. Right. And I'm saying professionals, and I'm only using the word in the sense not of making money, but in the sense of commitment to it. Professionals learn that to draw inspiration over a long career, you have to look to all those places we discussed earlier, once again, part of the reason I like New York. Then you have to connect that to inspiration and intent. Someplace there's a big circle, as Don Schlitz put, put it. There's a big circle, and you're walking around this circle, and you're looking through the windows and trying to figure out how to get into this thing. And as Glenn Fry used to say, you're trying to put big ideas in small spaces. And as you kind of just said before about you're always listening to music, it's, it's kind of a 24-7 job? I don't even know if job is the right word. But. I'd say it's an eight days a week job. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I would. Have you ever gotten in trouble with your wife for anything you've written that maybe she thought was about her and wasn't? Trouble? No. Uh, has she been surprised a couple of times that um, the song was actually about her? Yes. Just recently I wrote a song with the, with the great Joe Henry, which hopefully you'll be hearing soon. Yeah. And when I played it for my wife... She looked at me and I said, you know, that's about you. And I think she was a little surprised. But, you know, that's, that's a great question for another reason, and that is that the way of the links to imagination and perspective. Right. I once had a really famous recording artist who shall be, remain unknown, say to me in response, he was considering recording a song of mine, and I was sitting in the room with him. He was a fairly arrogant fellow. And he looked up and he, he recited the first four lines of the song. He said, you know, who would ever say that? And I leaned over very quietly and I said, I would. I wrote it about my wife. <laughs> Just 
before our love got lost, you said I am as constant as a northern star And I said, constantly in the darkness Where's that at? If you want me, I'll be in the bar One of my favorite songs, and one of my favorite songs for teaching Is Joni Mitchell's A Case of You And that's because in the first four lines of the song which are utterly conversational, she manages to paint a picture of the relationship, the physical setting, and the nature of the emotional moment. And, it, and as I say, it's totally conversational. I think conversational, um, I'd say the only rule, it's not a rule, but the only tool, uh, there are no rules, there are only tools. The, I'd say the, the tool is that if you're really trying to make people feel like they're there, you can either do it through the, the more florid description, descriptive, or you can do it through conversation or some combination of both, which is what she did in that song. And you place people. I learned a long time ago, particularly from writing with my dear friend Wendy Waldman, that location at the beginning of a song is so important. But that's not physical location. That's emotional location. And that's something a lot of people don't get. They feel, particularly in this day and age, they feel like they have to get to the hook in a minute, so they better tell you everything right. before they get to the hook. Uh, ideas I reject. Not, not commercially, I just reject artistically. I don't think that's particularly true. And, of course, oh, you ask about questions students ask. They don't use this term. I do. But the problem they frequently cite is, Second versitis is what I call it. And that's because they followed this more contemporary idea that everything has got to be told by right. the end of the first chorus. Then they get to verse two and they have no idea what to say. It, it, one of the master sessions you had at NYU recently, didn't Don Schlitz say something about the second verse, if it's better, move it up? What, what, what did he say yeah. about that? Well, Don spoke um, very eloquently, and who better than Don, um, of a, a principle that you you can read about um, in some really great songwriters. Don is one. Mutt Lang is another. Um, Don was specifically talking about the fact that, and this is when I talk about fear being your great enemy, this is what I'm getting at. So let's say you sit down and you write a song, and you write a great first verse, and you write a chorus that you think really works. And now you get to the second verse, and you start to come up with some ideas that are actually different, and you have a sneaking suspicion may be better than verse 1. In the inexperienced songwriter, fear tends to take over and say, oh, I couldn't change that. Or Mutt Lang's example, frequently cited by good friends like Barry Eastman, who work closely with Mutt, is he would say, okay, we've got a verse and a chorus. Let's throw out the verse, make the chorus the verse, and write a better chorus. Ah. You see, where that gets to is now Rogers' great comment, we're not songwriters. He said this at the master session. We're not songwriters, we're song rewriters. Right, right. And that's what I think Don's getting at. One example in my career that, that I love to tell students about because it illustrates what Glenn Fry used to say and what I have learned to say from Glenn in the classroom, which is, you know, we're all in the same boat. It doesn't matter how many Grammys, doesn't matter how many platinum records, we're still all starting from this same position of the, the challenge of actually expressing something that means something. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Listen now. You can hear a heartbeat warm against life's bitter cold. These are the days, the sweetest days. A really good example of what I'm talking about with intent and fear and what Schlitz is getting at about revision is in a story I like to cite in the classroom about how John Lennon, Wendy Waldman, and I wrote The Sweetest Days, which was the follow-up to Save the Best, Save the Best for Last. And uh, we were asked to write this song, and John and I started, and we wrote a verse, and we were very happy with the verse. And we turned to each other and we said, well, Save the Best for Last doesn't really have a chorus. Let's write a song for Vanessa with a chorus. Right. So we started to write a chorus and we hit a brick wall. In fact, we hit a brick wall so hard, we smashed up the session and stopped. Yeah. We just gave up. About five months later, I was on a plane flying to L.A. to meet John to start, continue to work, on, but on other songs. And... Um, I was going through my writing tapes because I keep voluminous records of what I write. And I was going through the writing tape, and I came across a snippet, and initially I didn't know what it was. I knew it was John because he was singing, and it was in his studio because I could hear the ambiance of it. And I listened, and I was enchanted with this. I couldn't believe we'd overlooked it. Yeah. And then as it got to the end of the section, I realized it was the ill-fated chorus experiment. So I turned it off. I went from the airport to John's house. We were supposed to go out to lunch. I, he opened the door. I said, come with me. We went back to the studio. I said, remember this? And I played it on the tape. And he said, yeah, why are you turning it off? What happens next? I said, don't you remember that lousy? I used a much stronger term. Chorus we tried? He said, no, I don't remember at all, but let's go. Yeah. We wrote the music in about two hours. Ah. Boom. I then took it to Wendy. We worked on the lyrics. We had a title, The Sweetest Days. We worked on the lyrics. We wrote a verse we loved. We could not get farther with it. We tried. We tried. John kept saying, what's going on? What's going on? Four or five months went by, and we, we didn't work on it all the time, and we weren't in the same city anyhow. I was totally frustrated. So was she. So was John. I happened to be in the studio producing another song for Vanessa, and during lunch... We got talking about our family lives. And she said, you know, the most difficult thing is to balance the professional and the personal. I'm really having trouble with that. And when we were done, I said, I'll meet you back in the studio. She went back, and I picked up the phone and I called Wendy. I said, I know what the song is about. Yeah. The first verse is that we've written is the second verse. I know what the first verse is about. Then we finished it. Every song we wrote, first of all, we were... Never, the three of us never in the same room at the same time. Yeah. Except for final polishes on a couple of songs. I would write the music with John. I'd write the lyric with Wendy. And then we'd get together and make a demo. Sometimes make demos in different cities. So we wrote in Nashville. Yeah. We wrote in L.A. We wrote in New York. Let me ask you about two things that uh, you just came up with uh, that, that I thought of as you're talking about that. One is the idea of how songwriters uh, book sessions to sit down and write and how that works with inspiration. And also a uh, topic I've brought up a lot here on the podcast, collaboration versus uh, single songwriters. What are your thoughts on, on both of those? Well, first of all, I think uh, in my experience, both as a writer and as a colleague and as a teacher, um, the second one frequently solves the first one. So if you're a collaborator and I would I tell you that if I make any claim for myself, it's that I think I'm a good collaborator. But more importantly, I love collaboration. Yeah. I love collaborating with my wife. I love co-parenting. I love working in teams. And I love writing with people who are more talented than I. And that's my goal. Um, collaboration frequently solves the first issue, the issue of inspiration, because so much of collaboration is finding points of contact. It's not necessarily mutual views. In fact, outside of liking what you're doing while you're doing it, uh, 
diversity of views can be incredibly helpful. So I find I used to get really worried. I used to think that um, I'm talking about when I started out. Uh, I used to think, well, when I show up for a collaboration, I'd better have a whole bunch of ideas. And I would drive myself crazy. And one of the experiences that changed that for me was that one day I was sitting in, in, at home, sitting in my studio. This is 1987 or 1986, I forget. And um, the phone rang. And the voice at the other end said, is this Phil Goldston? I said, yes. He said, hi, this is Carl Wilson. And I said, you're joking. And he said, no, I'm, I'm not joking. I got your number from Phil Ramone. Yeah. Now, Phil was my mentor as a producer, and by the way, the best song critic I ever met. And uh, he had, he and Carl were talking about a project, and so uh, Carl heard some of my songs, was intrigued, and wanted to get together. It took a long time due to the Beach Boys touring schedule, but we eventually got together and to, to write. So the night before I flew to L.A., I sat down and I made up a tape of 20 ideas yeah. taken from other tapes, and I thought, you know, this guy is more a singer than he is a writer. And this guy, you know, he's worked with his big brother all these years, and he's a genius. Um, and I walked in the room thinking, okay, I'm going to roll out these gems, and we'll, I'll guide him through writing some songs. And he said to me, listen, I'm sure you have some really great ideas with you. Would you mind listening to three ideas I've been working on before we start? I'm just a little nervous to play them for you. Would you mind? Yeah. And I said... I wouldn't mind at all. <laughs> he played me three ideas that were so good, we never got to any of my ideas. Yeah. And all three became uh, touchstones on the album we eventually made with Jerry Beckley from America and Robert Lamb from Chicago, Beckley, Lamb, Wilson. And um, that taught me that the more important thing to do was to show up and be ready and then react that's kind of what uh, Don Schlitz, who we mentioned before, he wrote of The Gambler for Kenny Rogers, written uh, more than 20 country number ones. It kind of equated uh, collaborating to improv. Yes, and was the phrase. Well, well I'd go farther than, than Don, and we actually talked about this in private. Um, you know, it's funny. I was just talking to Dave Schroeder, who's the director of the Jazz Studies Program at NYU, a wonderful teacher and a very interesting person. And I was talking about my determination to make sure that NYU songwriting students are connected to jazz theory and jazz improvisation. And he said, well, you know, that would be great. That's the basis of all, of all songwriting, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, well, I, you know, just like with Don, I said, I'd go farther. I'd say songwriting is improvisation codified. That's all we do. We sit down. It doesn't matter where the stimulus or where the inspiration comes from. You start something, you got a lick in your head, you got a series of chords, you have a melody, you have a title, something happens, off you go. If you're afraid, if you're feeling blocked, none of this stuff's going to happen. This is part of the reason why collaboration is so crucial. One other story about that. The first master session I did at NYU, the Songwriters Hall of Fame master sessions, first one I did was with the late, great Hal David. And Hal, at the time, was the chairman of the hall, and he liked this idea, so he was willing to put his name and his time behind it, oh, nice. for which I am eternally grateful. The second master session, which was with the man who took his role at the hall, the great Jimmy Webb. Well, I read Jimmy's wonderful book, Toonsmith, and in it, he details how he writes songs. I won't go into all the details. They're very, very interesting. But essentially, the point is that he writes some lyric that he really can stand behind. And only then, in most instances, does he write music. And when he told me this in the master session, explained this to the audience, I said, well, from my point of view, what you're really telling us is that the lyricist Jimmy Webb collaborates with the composer Jimmy Webb. Right. Because many times I've walked into a room with, here's a snippet of something, here's a lyric, let's just start there. You uh, you said something interesting before, how uh, Phil Ramone was uh, maybe the best critic of songwriting. The two best song critics I've met in my life were Phil Ramone and Arif Martin. What is what does that mean? What What is being a good critic? And I guess for a songwriter, you sort of have to have uh, the right amount of ego to accept criticism, right? Well, if, if you can't be receptive to criticism, uh, I'd say 
uh, might as well give up on the professional side. Now, uh, I teach a, I co-teach a course at NYU with, with Ruby Marchand, the head of International at Warner Music, a, a wonderful musician, a great communicator. And we focus on teaching the music business students how to be good rejectors. That's a, that's a word we developed, good rejectors, because um, it helps when people on the other side of the desk from the creator can reject well because they can be constructive and, and, and informative. And Phil and Arif, and I had much more experience with Phil, but Arif became a dear friend, um, was remarkably adept, both of them, but I'll talk about Phil, remarkably adept at making you see the song more clearly. One of the, one of the other greatest obstacles, and hopefully an obstacle becomes an objective over time for songwriters, is perspective. Now, that may seem really obvious. You, you write a piece for Billboard, and you read it out loud, or you print it out, and you show it to somebody. or You're always trying to see it. Songwriting is like that, except songwriting is involving a greater number of senses. Right. And usually involves performance to perceive what's being created. So, of course, recording and stepping away is really helpful. Well, Phil was like a recorder. He was like, he was someone I could play a song for, and he would say, okay, let's go through that again. And he would say, here, I don't think you're helping yourself with the pace. Or here, you're not helping yourself with the arc of the melody. Or here, structurally, you're just stuck in a structure that you committed to early in the writing of your song, but you don't necessarily have to have that structure the next time. And on and on. You know, when, when Phil died, Billy Joel was quoted as saying, in Billboard, Billy Joel was quoted as saying that at most recording sessions, Phil Ramone was the most talented musician in the room. He just didn't tell anybody. He just never showed it. Yeah. And I had that experience with him a million times. And uh, we, we would get together and have dinner with my wife usually and, and at our place, and he'd spend some time with her because they were close, and then he and I would retreat to my studio, and he'd play what he was working on, and I had the great fortune to play for him what I was working on. And the last time we did this uh, was about a year before he passed, uh, at the end of the evening, I said to him, I have to confess something to you. He said, what's, what's that? You, you really have to confess something after all these years? I said, yes, I do. I wouldn't feel good about myself if I didn't. He said, okay, go ahead. I said, you know all those years I spent sitting near you, alongside you, at the console with you, in recording studios or in offices, while you listened to work we were co-producing or you were producing of mine, et cetera, he said, yes. I said, well, most of those years, while you played the record or the song over and over again, I would sit there thinking, particularly in the early days, why is he doing this? He knows every note that's on there. He shaped all the sounds that are on there. He chose this song in the first place. Right. And he smiled and he said, yes. And what do you want to confess? I said, I now know what you were doing. He said, okay, what was I doing? I said, you were trying to gain perspective. He said, you're right. I'm glad you learned. When did you know you were, I never say even become, when did you know you were a songwriter? Really young? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Um, my parents uh, thought it was really important that my brother, sister, and I have a piano. And uh, they had lived in Baltimore for a while, and they met a piano teacher who was a friend of one of my father's sisters. And when they moved back to New York, they contacted her and asked her if she would recommend a piano. I know this sounds strange. Most people go to the store. Anyway, she did. And that piano was shipped up from Baltimore. It's an 1896 Steinway Upright Grand. I was just joking with the people at Steinway about this piano. And um, so the piano was deposited in my brother's and my bedroom. And so there it was. And I loved music from the get-go, and I was always singing. And I began to play piano in the room. In the, so my brother and sister, both older than I, were playing piano and piano lessons. And I began to kind of fool around with what they were playing. But I didn't know the notes. I didn't, have a, I didn't even know the names of the notes. Oh, okay, yeah. And one day my mother came in and said, I hear you playing the piano. Would you like to know the notes? My mother was not musical. 
I said, yes. So she took out a keyboard chart. She showed me the notes. Then she showed me what the notes on the page were. Show me how they linked. Then she left me alone. About two weeks later, she came to me, and she said, the piano teacher is coming today. Would you like to take a lesson? And I said, oh, yes, I would. And the piano teacher came. And uh, she sat me down. She said, I understand from your mother you can play a couple of the pieces your brother and sister are practicing, and you haven't had a lesson. I said, yeah. She said, okay, play one for me. So I played long, long ago in the key of F, and she said, when I was done, she said, that's good. You see these little numbers above the key, above the notes? Those tell you which fingers you should use. You're not using the right fingers. I'm coming back next week. If you can play this piece with the right fingers, I'll teach you. And if you can't, I won't. Ah. And I couldn't. <laughs> not only that, I wouldn't. <laughs> so I didn't take piano lessons for a long time afterwards, but I did start writing songs. Okay. And uh, came naturally to you? Just popped into your head? Well, you know, I don't, yeah, yes. Yeah, I don't, you know, I always, I always have trouble with the word naturally because I see it as such, such a work process. But yes, yes, I think I'm a musical guy, and um, I certainly loved it and was intrigued by it. And, of course, I'd always paid attention, not of course, I'd already always paid attention to who wrote what on all the records. My sister was a Presley fanatic. I always paid, I knew who Carl Perkins was, etc. And then through the folk era, the same thing, and I noticed who wrote their own songs, and there were very few people who did it. And then when the Beatles hit, all bets were off. But listen, when I met Barry Mann, um, one of my utter heroes, and got to write with him, I could tell him all sorts of odd, eccentric songs he had written that weren't hits because I paid attention to that stuff. And how did you, uh, all leading up to it, I want to make sure we talk about how you wrote Save the Best for Last, mm. but uh, how did you start uh, as a professional songwriter getting your songs recorded? You, you had a top 10 uh, for Starship even before oh, yeah. uh, Save the Best for Last. Yeah. It's not over till it's over, number yeah. nine on the Hot 100, 1987. Yeah. Where, did, where did that part of your career uh, start to take off? So the professional part of it um, was a natural outgrowth of what you termed the natural facility, I guess, to a degree with, with words and, and music. And um, like many of my contemporaries, since the Beatles were the start, beginning, middle, and end, I uh, wanted to be in a rock band, was in a rock band, got a record deal when we were 17 ah. on Epic. Then, um, what was the a, band? It was called SISM, ah. Music Backwards. That's right. <laughs> Nobody heard it. Everybody, everybody out there in the listening audience is saying, who, who, who? And then um, I started a jazz rock band. Freeway, which became quite well-known in New York, but never made records. That's a whole other... We could spend a couple of hours on both of these things, at least from my point of view. <laughs> then um, coming out of uh, Freeway, in which I had some really great experiences and met a lot of important people in music, I uh, connected with a wonderful uh, singer-songwriter named Peter Tom, and Peter and I formed a duo, first known as Galson and Tom, and later as Far Cry. And Peter and I uh, got signed to Chapel Music, by Ron Soliveld and Tommy Mottola. And we began to write, and we had some big covers, and we won the American Song Festival. I like to joke with Paul Williams that he gave us our $35,000 prize, and he likes to joke that since that was in his uh, pre-recovery days, he doesn't remember any of it. <laughs> and um, that started that kind of professional career of writing for people, writing for ourselves. We made two albums, one with the great John Simon and one with Elliot Shiner, and that started the Phil Ramone connection and really changed my life. Sometimes the snow comes down in June Sometimes the sun goes round the moon Just when I thought a chance had passed You go and say the best blessed All right. Save the best for last. Uh, five weeks at number one, the Billboard Hot 100, uh, number one AC song of the year for 1992. I was just reading before this interview. I, I guess I hadn't realized that it's a love song, but originally you had written it as a sarcastic title where someone does something at the end of a relationship that's that's bad, and you're saying, oh, they they so they saved the best for last in a, in a bad way. And was it Wendy, uh, the co-writer, said that that might not work. Yeah, it's very typical of my uh, dark, twisted Jewish nature to <laughs> think of uh, what could go wrong. And so when I wrote down in my little black book at the time, the title, Save the Best for Last, um, 
that's how I thought of it. I, I wouldn't. I, I would say it wasn't sarcastic as much as it was um, bittersweet. And so it. The, my when when John John and I were writing, and this is so typical of the way people write songs, and and so many stories like this about writing big songs. We were in a borrowed apartment in Hollywood, and. Um, we were working on the lyrics to a song we were absolutely positive was a smash for Steve Perry. I'm not sure we've ever said it was Steve Perry, but that's who it was. Ah. We were positive. And we took a little break because writing this lyric was really difficult. And while we took the break, I played the first four notes of what became the melody, and John said, oh, what's that? And so we just went off on a lark. I mean, you know, all songwriters do this. John and I did it. Uh, I would say John and I musically were combustible. You just, either one of us could start on something and boom, we just go. So in this case, in 27 minutes, because we have a tape of it, we wrote, in 27 minutes, because wow. we have a tape of it, right. we wrote almost all the music. I added a little intro later. And um, when we were done with that little 27-minute jag, we called it our Broadway song. Uh, John said to me, um, well, God, we're having so much trouble writing the lyrics to this. First of all, what should it be called? And I looked at my book, and I said, oh, here's one that could work. Save the best for last. So we sang it that way. He said, okay, we're not going to write this lyric now. Uh, who, why don't you write the lyric with somebody else? So I said, okay, but who? He said, well, you've always talked about how much you like writing with Wendy Waldman. Yeah. Why don't you write it with Wendy? And I said, well, Wendy's in Nashville. He said, all right, you get together with her. Go ahead. So I went home. This is, this is uh, February. I went home. Um, about three weeks later, I suffered a terrible blow to my production career, which is all of the story, where somebody pulled a project on me that I had been working on for almost a year. And... Um, even though I hated him at the time, I thank him now. And my wife said, you're really moping around the house. Why don't you get out of town? And I said, and leave you with two little kids? She said, yes, that would be better than the current state. So I said, okay, great. Where should I go? I just lost this production deal. Yeah. She said, you should go to Nashville because Wendy's always inviting you to go. I had never been there. So I went there for a weekend. Wendy was nine months pregnant. I walked in. She said, what do you have? I said, well, the first thing I have is this. And I played her, Save the Best for Last. She said, my God, that is gorgeous. What did you say it's called? I said, Save the Best for Last. She said, and what do you mean by that? And I said, well, I see it as ironic. person is saying, at the end of the relationship, this is what you're going to do? And she said, you're crazy. And I said, why? She said, it's not that at all. I said, what do you mean? She said, no, no, no. It's that at the end... At, at this moment, you did the most beautiful, surprising thing you could ever do. And I said, you mean like a moon in June thing? And she said, yes. And one of us said, sometimes the sun goes. And the rest is whatever it is. So then we made a little demo. We sent it to John. And John was the person who perceived, talk about getting perspective. Right. He perceived that it was strong. I'm not sure that it, any of us thought it was a hit. Really? Yeah, if you go back and read those Billboard charts from that time period, even read the charts. Remember, it was written two years before it came out. Okay. But secondly, even read the charts from when it was a hit. There are very few songs. Uh, my friend Alan Menken's Beauty and the Beast yeah. was one. But most songs were not. They were intensely chorus-driven, up-tempo, high energy. That's what's interesting about that song. I, I think... I guess for me, probably for a lot of people, it's it's the verses that are probably considered the hook, right? There is that other part of the song that well, maybe it, is the chorus. It's what's, no, it's, I, I would never, none of us would call it a chorus. Yeah. I, I, I like to call it, it's a punchline song. Okay. And one of my prized possessions is a rejection letter from Clive Davis in which he said, I don't like one line hooks. <laughs> did it go to other people before Vanessa Williams? It did. It went to three, went to three people. It went to Clive for Whitney. It went to Jay Landers for Barbara Streisand. And it went to Arif for Bette Midler. Ah. And all three had their reasons why. And, you know, looking back, um, 
irrespective of Clive's comments. I mean, that's personal taste. That's what makes the world go around. Um, I'm really, I'm really glad they said no, not just because it was successful, but because what I really think it led to, just in the in the same spirit, if I can return to the theme of not being fearful and just continuing to go, was that that's what led uh, the song to get to um, to Ed Eckstein, who was the president of Mercury, and for Ed to play it for Vanessa, who burst into tears when she heard it and said. Uh. Or this is what Ed has told me, and said, "I can't believe they want to give me this song." Right. And boy, did we ever! And um, but the other great move on Ed's part was to bring Keith Thomas into it. And the funny story there quickly is that Ed called me, and he said, um, "Okay, we're all set to do this. We're all excited about it. And uh, I know you and John want to produce this, but um, I've committed to Keith Thomas." And I said, who's Keith Thomas? And he said, he produced the Winans records. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> You're okay with that. And Keith, you know, he's a very respectful producer and one of the most musical guys you could ever meet. And he knew what to leave alone. And he, more importantly, knew not to hype anything. I'm guessing you like Vanessa's version of it, what she did with the song. Because as a songwriter, it. you're giving it off to someone else. And at that point... Listen, I've, I've got. I once asked Hal David at the master session. I asked Hal, "Are there are there uh, big records of your songs that you like, and and some you don't like?" And he said, "Well, if they're hits, I learn to like them." <laughs> but for me, that's never been the case. And I've had some big hits, which will be nameless, that I'm not as fond of. But I really think that Vanessa, with her sincerity quotient, her abilities as a, a storyteller, which comes from her training as an actress. And Keith's restraint and Ed's total commitment to keeping it that way made it not only really strong and not only totally true to the to the song itself, but made it a breakthrough record for its time. It sounds like uh, the students at NYU have such a great resource oh, in thank you. you. Are you excited with uh, to, to always be seeing new generations coming along? And, and, and what are some of the jobs that, that people go on to when they graduate? First of all, Important to know, the songwriting program is very young. We're in year, I believe, four Okay. now. And we've been a graduate program until now. In September of 17, we will be an undergraduate program as well. And we've received, I believe last count, was something in the neighborhood of 50 applications, which is no small number for this kind of highly selective elite program. I'm very excited about this upcoming term. Uh, we have at least one new graduate student joining us kind of mid-year, which is great. And one of the things we've been doing at at Steinhardt uh, in the songwriting program is we've been greatly expanding our sense of community. So students not only get access to the superior teachers, among them Barry Eastman, uh, David Wolford, Roseanne Cash comes in and teach teaches with us a couple of times at terms and, and others, um, but also um, they get unparalleled access to our guests, both at our Friday at One series and at the master sessions where they meet you yourself, Gary, witness that amazing experience of Don Schlitz spending 90 minutes in private communication right. with songwriting students. You don't get that at every school. You don't get it in every program. But we're also going deeper. Now we're setting up much more interdisciplinary collaboration. So the students in songwriting are going to have we're going to get to work with great rhythm section players from jazz, many of whom are taught by Lenny Pickett from Saturday Night Live. And um, our students are going on to very interesting careers. I mean, um, the, the wonderful duo, uh, A Great Big World, are alums, strictly speaking, of the music business program, but they reminded me when I saw them recently that they had studied with me early in my ah. time there. They're very complimentary, which was sweet. And... Um, We've got some others who are really coming along, big, interesting things. Um, I would suggest your audience check out online. Among others, A.J. Smith, Peter Wise, the really remarkable Tiger Darrow, David Marenberg. Uh, I know I'm, somebody's going to be upset with me forgetting, for forgetting a couple, but th those are four people come to mind. Uh, Austin Zudek, who's great, um, Brett Miller, and people are getting big placements in commercials. People are, are 
you know, one of the great things about a Steinhardt education is it's incredibly broad. So some of our students go from thinking they want to be songwriters to being film scorers and producers like Andrew Orkin, who's doing great work in film and commercial scoring. David Marenberg, as I said, doing great work in L.A. in that world. Um, so it's, we are very excited. And the way uh, multimedia is developing nowadays, there's probably more opportunities than ever to get songs placed in, in whether it's video games or all different kinds exactly. of Exactly, and that's what I mean by the interdisciplinary because our students get to write songs for NYU student films, for NYU student video games, for all manner of presentation. And uh, their interface with the music business program means that they get some insight into that. It's, it's a pretty special place. And uh, the studios, too. I got a tour when I was there. Pretty pretty top class. Well, not only that, but we're uh, about to announce the opening of two uh, small, I'd call them writing rooms, but their studios are fully stocked just for songwriters. And uh, next fall, uh, I have lured into the Steinhardt fold the great Kevin Killen, engineer for Bowie and U2 and many others, who's going to teach the first production for songwriters course oh, great. with all new gear uh, in one facility and then in the studio you toured, the Dolan Studio. It's uh, great to hear uh, both just your, your, your memories of writing some of these big hits, the way you're sharing that knowledge with, uh, with students uh, nowadays. Uh, Phil, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I'll, I'll let you go uh, back out into New York and get more inspiration. On to write back. songs. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you, Gary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 